And so we come to this letter to the Ephesians. And so here's just a, 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 a slightly odd uh, video clip, uh, which may just give us at the start of this series an overview of Paul's letter to the Ephesians uh, this morning. If we could just see that clip, uh, and then we'll have the reading from Ephesians. And How Paul came to the city of Ephesus, it's really interesting. You can go read about it in Acts chapter 19. Ephesus was a huge city. It was the epicenter of worship for most of the Greek and Roman gods. And for over two years, Paul had a really effective missionary presence there, and lots of people became followers of Jesus. Years later, after being imprisoned by the Romans, Paul wrote this letter. The movement of thought in the letter divides into two really clear halves. In the first half, Paul is exploring the story of the gospel, how all history came to its climax in Jesus and in his creation of this multi-ethnic community of his followers. The second half of the letter is linked to the first by the word therefore. And here Paul explores how the gospel story should affect how we live every part of our life story personally, in our neighborhoods and communities, and in our families. So let's dive in, and we can see how Paul develops all of this. Chapter 1 opens with a beautiful Jewish-style poem, where Paul praises God the Father for the amazing things that he has done in Christ Jesus. From eternity past, the Father has purpose to choose and bless a covenant people. And think here, the family of Abraham and Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And through Jesus now, anyone can be adopted into that family. Jesus's death covers our worst sins, our worst failures, and in Jesus we find God's grace. In fact, Paul says that grace has opened up a whole new way for us to understand every part of our lives. He says in chapter 1, verse 10, that God's purpose was to unify all things in heaven and on earth, under Christ, which is a title that means Messiah. God's plan was always to have a huge family of restored human beings who are unified in Jesus the Messiah. This divine purpose became clear, Paul says, when we were first made into that family. And here he's referring to ethnic Jews in the family of Abraham. But then Paul talks about how you, and here he means non-Jews, you all heard about Jesus and the salvation through him. And you were also brought into this family by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so here he's referring to the events told in the stories of Acts about how God's spirit brought together Jew and non-Jew into one family in Jesus. It's just like God promised to Abraham long ago. Notice also how in this poem, Paul begins by talking about God the Father, but then about Jesus the Son, and then here at the end about the Spirit. All three work together as Paul tells the story of the gospel. It's really cool. After the poem, Paul responds with a prayer. He prays that these followers of Jesus would not just know about, but personally experience the power of the gospel, that they would be energized by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and placed him as the exalted head of the whole world. Now, in chapter two, Paul goes back and he elaborates on some key ideas from the poem in chapter one, especially God's grace and this new multi-ethnic family of Jesus. He begins by retelling the story of how these non-Jewish Christians came to know Jesus. Before hearing about Jesus, they were physically alive, but they were spiritually dead. They were trapped in a purposeless life of selfishness and sin, and they were deceived by dark spiritual forces of evil. But amazingly, God in his great love and mercy, he saved them, he forgave all of their sins, and he joined their lives to Jesus's resurrection life, and he's brought them back to life too. And so now having been created as new human beings through Jesus, 
They have the joy of discovering all of the new calling and purposes and tasks that God has set before them. Not only have they been shown God's grace, they've also been invited into a new family. Before hearing about Jesus, these non-Jewish people, they were not just cut off from God. They were cut off from his covenant people, the family of Abraham. And for a really practical reason, the commands of the Sinai covenant, they formed like a boundary line around the family. They were like a barrier that kept most non-Jewish people away. But in Jesus, the laws of the Torah have been fulfilled and the barrier is removed. The two ethnic groups have become, as Paul puts it, a new unified humanity that can live together in peace. So Paul goes on in chapter three to marvel at the unique role that he got to have in spreading this good news to non-Jewish people. And even though he's in prison, he's thanking God for the chance he's had to see this covenant family grow so huge. So Paul closes the first half of the letter with another prayer. This time he prays that Jesus's followers would be strengthened by God's spirit to simply grasp and comprehend the love that Christ has for his people. The second half of the letter begins with Paul shifting gears and he starts challenging the reader to respond to the gospel story by how they live their own life story. So he starts in chapter four with just the everyday life of the church. The church is a big family with lots of different kinds of people, but he emphasizes that they are one. And one is a key word in this chapter. They are one body that's unified by one spirit. They have one Lord with one faith. They have one baptism. They believe in one God. That's a lot of unity. However, Paul says unity is not the same thing as uniformity. He goes on to explore how Jesus's new family consists of lots of very, very different kinds of people, but they're all empowered by the one Holy Spirit, each using their unique talents and passions to serve and to love each other and to build up the church. And here he uses two really cool metaphors. One is building up the church as a new temple. And the second is that they are all becoming a new humanity with Jesus as the head. And this new humanity is a metaphor he's going to then run with for the next couple chapters. Paul challenges every Christian to take off their old humanity, like a set of old clothes, and to put on their new humanity in which the image of God is being restored. And he then goes on into this long section where he compares this new and old humanity. So instead of lying, new humans speak truth. Instead of harboring anger, they peacefully resolve their conflicts. Instead of stealing, new humans are generous. Instead of gossiping, they encourage people with their words. Instead of getting revenge, new humans forgive. Instead of gratifying every sexual impulse, new humans cultivate self-control of their bodily desires. Instead of getting drunk, new humans come under the influence of God's spirit. And he spells out what that influence looks like in four different ways. The first two have to do with singing, singing together, but also singing alone. And this is really interesting that the first thing that Paul thinks of about how the spirit works in the lives of Jesus' people is singing and music. The third sign of the spirit's influence is being thankful for everything. And the fourth is that the spirit will compel Jesus's followers to put themselves underneath others and to elevate others as more important than themselves. And Paul actually expands on this fourth point by showing how it works in Christian marriage. 
So you have a wife who follows Jesus. She is called to respect and to allow her husband to become responsible for her. And the husband is called to love his wife and to use his responsibility to lay down his selfish agenda and to prioritize his wife's well-being above his own. And Paul says it's this kind of marriage that's actually reenacting the gospel story. The husband's actions mimic Jesus and his love and his self-sacrifice. The wife's actions mimic the church, which allows Jesus to love her and to make her new. Paul then applies the same idea to children and parents as well as slaves and masters. Paul closes out the letter by reminding these Christians of the reality of spiritual evil. These are beings and forces that will try to undermine the unity of Jesus's people and to compromise their new humanity. And so Paul challenges them to stand firm and to put on this metaphorical set of body armor, which he describes in detail. And Paul has drawn all of these pieces of body armor from the book of Isaiah and how Isaiah depicted the messianic king. And so now as the Messiah's followers, we need to make the Messiah's attributes our own since we make up Jesus's body. Practically, I think Paul means for Christians to begin to form habits, proactively using prayer and the scriptures and our relationships with each other to help us grow and mature as followers of Jesus. And that's the letter to the Ephesians. Very powerful. It's where Paul summarizes the whole gospel story and how it should reshape every part of our life story. Our reading is taken from Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. feel slightly intimidated after that video. In some ways you think, that, you know, why do we need to stand up and preach? That was such a stunning overview. It's a great clip. I think it works really, really well. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that with us. 
Um, I think I just also want to say that an overview is quite important. So if you want to travel well with us through this series, it would do you good to read the book of Ephesians in one sitting. We sometimes fear that. I don't know what it is. We read books and novels and newspapers, but actually sitting and reading a whole book of the Bible in one sitting is something that challenges us and we don't often do. It will take less than an hour. So if you can find 40 minutes, 45 minutes to sit and read the book of Ephesians, you will be able to read it as it was written. Because it wasn't written in chunks. It was written as a letter. Uh, And to actually see that whole flow, as we've just seen in that overview, is really, really helpful. So there's a challenge for the week. Sit down, pour a cup of tea, and read through the book of Ephesians from the beginning to the end. It won't take you very long. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that we can learn from Scripture as much as those who it was written for. It is relevant to us today. And as we begin this, this new series on Ephesians, would you speak to us individually and as a church what you are saying to us from the depths of this book, the riches of this book. May we see them afresh and anew and follow in your way. Amen. I have got a terrible sense of direction. I'm good on lefts and rights. I can follow maps. But I do not have an instinctive understanding of where I am in relation to another place. It's quite a problem when it comes to, for example, the worst thing for me is being in a hotel room along a long corridor. I arrive, get into my room, unpack, and when it's time to leave, I open the door and I do not know whether to turn left or right. Unless there's a sign in front of me saying stairs that way. I cannot see in my head where I am, even though I have just walked in. When we used to visit um, our son in his first year at university, he was in a a room that you came out, and there were two different ways you could go into the town. And we went different ways each time. And it took me the whole year, to, and I had to stand and think, now where am I, what road am I on, which is that road, which is that road, to know whether to turn right or left. I cannot imagine what is the the way rooms are laid out inside a property from the outside. I have to go inside and walk into them and look out and think, okay, so this is the window. It's really bad. I do not have a visual understanding of where I am. Travelling is fine because I can follow maps, I can follow directions, and I know right and left. It's that innate understanding of looking down and understanding instinctively where I am. You may be like that as well, in which case you empathise with me. You may be thinking, oh my goodness, I didn't realise she was as stupid as that. (laughs) The best thing for me in a new time is to see visually where I am. And so going up to the top of a high building and looking down over a town helps tremendously. Because then I can actually see where I am, I can look around, and then I can hold that in my memory, and then I've got the picture. It's not instinctive, I have to see it. So standing on top of a tall building, looking around at a town helps enormously. 
And if I can do that, if we're in a new place, we are able to get up high and look down. That really helps me get to grips with my bearings of where I am in a new place. The book of Ephesians is like going up for me to that tall, high tower and looking down at where everything is laid out. Paul takes us up. He takes us up and says, let me show you the landscape. Let me show you the landscape of who God is, what his plan is, and where you fit into it. So it's a journey up a tower. For those of us who can't find it instinctively, it's helpful. He takes us up to the top and he lays out before us the landscape of the story of salvation and our place as individuals and as a church within it. It is why it's such a crucial letter and why it can help us so much. And so we get insight from that lofty place of the issues and the themes that the early church were dealing with, which are still the issues and themes which we deal with today. And they're not dealt with in isolation. They are dealt with within the context of the big picture, the big story. I love the big picture. I'm a big picture person, even though instinctively I can't work out where I am. In other areas of life, I can see clearly the big picture. For others, it's not so easy, and we get stuck in the detail. This book takes us first to the top, and then says, let's deal with the detail later. We will deal with the detail when you have grasped the big picture. So this is, again, why I love this book. If you want to have it open in front of you, it's page 1173. Um, And we're looking at chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. But a bit of background. We've had some background already. Paul's letters, within the big picture of the Bible, fit in concurrently with the book of Acts. So we can see where Paul is and what's been happening by also understanding the book of Acts. So we can understand Paul's relationship with Ephesus by turning back to Acts. I'm not going to ask you to do that, but if you've got even more time, if you only spent 45 minutes reading Ephesians, spend the last 15 looking at Acts chapter 18 and 19. Because in Acts chapter 18 and 19, we work out why Paul is writing to Ephesus. He visits Ephesus on a short trip on his third missionary journey. You will know that Paul travelled out on three missionary journeys, stopping in different places. And on his third journey, he stopped for a short time in Ephesus. Not for very long. And he'd been travelling with a couple called Priscilla and Aquila. And he leaves them in Ephesus while he moves on. But shortly afterwards, in Acts 19... He returns to Ephesus. And he returns to spend a longer time there, somewhere between two and three years, living in the city. And what he does is that he joins in with the life of the Ephesians. And part of their culture is to spend time debating. So he gathers where those people already are and joins in the conversation with them and spends two to three years Debating his truth of the gospel with people who are sharing other ideologies and other beliefs. And as he shares the gospel message in that natural setting, 
people come to know Jesus for themselves and the church grows and develops and builds. We saw on the, on the clip that Ephesus was a major city. It was a port. It's actually now silted up and so the river doesn't reach as far as Ephesus. But it was an important harbour. It had links with Rome, Corinth, Antioch and Alexandra. It had a population of about a third of a million. A big place. We sometimes, again, look back on the Bible and think there were really small, tiny rural communities. No, this is a huge, bustling city. Multi-ethnic, on a trade route, commerce, all the things that we would imagine in a thriving port. It was also a prominent centre of pagan religion, especially linked around the worship of Artemis or Diana. And there was a temple to Diana, which is actually one of the ancient seven wonders of the world. So lots of religions, lots of nationalities, commerce, busyness, thriving city, and Paul spends some time there debating and sharing with the people there the good news of Jesus. He continues on his journeys and ends up in Rome, where he ends up in prison. And Paul does not waste time in prison, but he uses his time in prison to write letters to churches that he has already known, and actually to a couple of churches he hasn't met. So he writes this letter to the Ephesians from prison in Rome. It's an unusual letter because most of the other letters he's writing because he's heard of heresy, of false teaching, of where there's been confusion in the teaching of Jesus. And he writes to correct those false understandings. But he's not doing that to Ephesus. He's not writing to correct any false teaching. What he's doing, he's writing to expand the horizons of these early Christians. It's wonderful. He's saying, let me take you higher up the tower and let me show you what lies down. You've got stuck. Let me take you higher up. And he wants to expand their horizons in two ways. He wants them to understand more clearly what God's eternal purpose is. What is God's vision? What is God's main aim What is his plan? He wants them to grasp that much more clearly. And following on from that, the second reason, once they understand that, he wants them then to better understand how they then live their lives. If this is God's plan, and we are part of his plan, therefore, that was the key word, how we live is like this. So he's saying, let me... Go deeper with you. We like that language in our current culture. Let's as a church go deeper. And we go deeper by going to God and seeing who he is and his plan. And then we respond by saying, if this is then what we've understood, therefore we then live our lives like this. And so that is the pattern of Ephesians. It's done much better on the video. So he begins in Ephesians 1 with this poem, with this prayer, which is full of theology and doctrine. And it focuses primarily on Jesus. It focuses on Jesus as the central feature of our faith and understanding. 
Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Jesus has a central place in God's plan. Jesus wasn't an afterthought when everything went wrong with God's people. Jesus was always part of God's plan. And we can go back to the Old Testament and we can see prophecies and references that look forward to Jesus. So it wasn't that God had a plan with his people and they got it horribly wrong and they thought, okay, let's move on to plan B. Jesus was always part of God's plan. Jesus was there from the beginning. When we read John chapter 1 at Christmas time, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Jesus was always part of the plan. So therefore, he has a central place in God's plan. Therefore, he has a central place in the life of the Christian believer. He moves on. This is a brief, this is deep theology, but this is a brief overview of the theology of it. In, in verses 4 to 6, not only has Jesus been part of the plan, but so has the church. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. We were adopted through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace. We have been part of God's plan. That is mind-blowing. We, the church, have been part of God's plan from the beginning. And we have been saved through Jesus. It talks about redemption, of forgiveness, of grace. And we experience that individually. We experience what it means to be a new creation in Christ. When God looks on us, and sees not our, our sin, but sees Jesus in our place. When we can come in freedom to the Father because of what Jesus has done for us. That is the most powerful thing we can ever know. And that affects us individually. But salvation is not about us as individuals feeling good and having a relationship directly with the Father. We are saved to bring praise to God to bring praise and glory. And he will accomplish what he has intended for creation through us. So we are saved, therefore we live. We live with Christ, being as him in the world where he has placed us. It's both and. This is the truth, therefore we live. We know Jesus in our lives individually but in order that we then take part as Christ in God's plan. And this is possible in verses 13 to 14. Having believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. We know who we are because of the work of the Holy Spirit. This is Trinity theology, Father, Son and Spirit. God the Father has the plan. Jesus is central to the plan. We are brought into that plan through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the seal of the Spirit placed upon us. And we work to bring praise and glory to God. Jesus 
is the central part of all that Paul is saying. And remember, this is the early church. Some of them might even have, ex- have known Jesus. Others won't have done. This is early days since Jesus was alive and living and died and rose again and ascended into heaven. And Paul is saying Jesus is central. Central to God's plan and central to you. And we experience all the riches of Christ because of the love that the Father has for us, lavished upon us. That's the word that is used there. God lavishes us with his love and his grace through Jesus. And we cooperate in order to play our part in God's plan. So the vast landscape where we are just now takes us back to God and his plans for his creation to renew the whole of creation back to him, to bring them home to him. And Jesus is central in that. And we are caught up in that as we accept all that Jesus has done for us and live as sons and daughters of the Father through the power of the Spirit. But I want to really emphasize today that Jesus is the key part. Because we can say that time and time again. But the reality of living with Jesus centrally to our lives is hard. And it's like me coming out of my hotel room and not knowing whether to turn right or left. What on earth does it mean for me to live with Jesus as the centre of my life? I want to show a picture. If we can have the picture up, Rob, that would be great. This was a picture that I saw on a a Facebook thing and it really struck me when I I saw it and I I searched for it to be able to, to download it to show it to you today. It's a little girl And that's why it's relevant to me, because it speaks to me. And when I look at this picture, what I see is a little girl who's been completely herself, with no inhibitions, who's just sitting there playing with her feet, being who she is. And Jesus is sitting next to her, with real love and care, and just wanting to be with her. And I looked at that and I thought, is this how I experience Jesus in my life? This is what I long for. And this is the promise that we read about in Ephesians. This is the relationship that we have with Jesus and that I don't allow myself to enter into fully. Why? Because it's vulnerable. I have to be completely myself. I can't hide I can't put on my best clothes and my best behaviour and say, this is who I really am, Jesus. Because that's not how the relationship is. He wants me to come completely as I am. Which is the most freeing thing as well. So why do I resist it? Because I can't believe that somebody wants to love me as I truly am. And we have to get over this. We have to be truly ourselves with Jesus. To be able to sit in his presence, 
knowing that we are loved. And how good will that little girl feel? And the love will respond back. And when we are loved like that, we take on all that love and live it. Because being a Christian isn't about adopting a lot of rules. As we saw in that video clip, Jesus fulfilled all the commandments and and they were knocked down. I mean, theologically, they're still there, but you know what I mean. That we are not bound by a list of rules. We are bound by being a new creation. That's the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. It still means that we live our lives Christ-like. But because we are loved rather than because we are obeying a lot of rules. If I can fully accept the love of Jesus, how much easier it is to live in that love and therefore to live as Christ in the world and to fulfill God's purpose for me as living as a child of God. That is what I want. And that is what I experience sometimes. How do I experience it? In worship. And again, I, I watched this earlier in the week, but the thing that struck me watching it again, the video, the first thing that is a sign of the Spirit is singing that Paul mentions. There is something about worship that allows us to encounter Jesus. And I know there's a big debate throughout Christendom, throughout history, about how we sing when we come together. The purpose of singing is not for fun, is not because we like particular tunes, it's to meet Jesus. And we meet Jesus in different ways, and that is the challenge. But our worship is about longing to meet with Jesus as we sing his praises. And for some that will be with organ, for some it will be with guitars. I don't want to go there at the moment. I just want to say the principle is this, that our worship is there in order that we meet Jesus. And when I truly want to spend time with Jesus, I stick on a worship CD and I drop every other distraction and I sit. Especially if it's a song about Jesus. And I sit in his presence and I meet him. For me, it's also in in large gatherings to walk into a new wine tent with 10,000 people singing his praises and I can feel the presence, actively feel it within me. And that isn't right for everybody. For others, it's walking into a cathedral and hearing the organ play. That works for me as well. But we have to realise that our worship is there to encounter Jesus. And actually, when we see that, it plays a different part, doesn't it? And we want time. We want time to worship. We want time to spend in God's presence, in the presence of Jesus, singing his praises. And we want time in prayer. And we want time in scripture. There is something about time that is really, really important. I cannot develop that relationship that that little girl has with Jesus in snatched moments. It takes time. Through worship, through prayer, and through scripture. Through reading the stories of the Gospels. Of really knowing Jesus. Not the Jesus I think I know. 
but really knowing the Gospels. And reading, I read John's Gospel for a course I was on in one sitting. And it transformed the way I saw the Gospel of John. Because they follow on. All the bits follow on and it makes sense when you read it in one. Also reading the Bible and imagining yourself into a situation. You're one that's sitting in the crowd at the feeding of the 5,000. And Jesus stands up and offers a tiny picnic to the Father. And everyone is fed with more left over. What does that feel like? Can I get the awe and the wonder of that? Can I look into the eyes of Jesus as he heals the sick and see him looking at me like that? We need time. And time is one of our greatest challenges. Because the devil does not want us to spend time with Jesus. So whenever we sit down to do it, the phone will ring. We're thinking about what we're going to cook for supper that night. Our mind will just go and go and go. And so we have to learn to slow down, to take the time and to be with Jesus. One of the reasons that we want to run Encounter once a month, here's the plug, Tuesday evening, 8 o'clock, is to have more time. And it might be more time in worship. It might be more time in prayer. It will be different on each occasion. It might be spending time looking at scripture. But Encounter is an oasis where we can have more time than we do on a Sunday morning to spend with Jesus. If you long to know Jesus better, that's a good thing to put in your diary. This Tuesday, 8 o'clock in church, and we're going to spend some time on our own praying and some time with some um, inspiration from some songs and some, some talk as well. But time to come to know Jesus better and to spend time with him. Can you clear some space in your diary? to be with Jesus. Because if Jesus is central, we need to know him. How can we make Jesus known if we don't know him ourselves? This is slightly changed from what I was going to say, but I really feel this quite strongly is what God is saying, that time is a problem. And I haven't written that down at all, but I just really sense God is saying, I look at you and I hear your hunger and your thirst. I know that many of you are longing to know me better, God is saying. And can I just say to you, I'm here. I'm always here. I never abandon you. But you need to carve out space. You need to carve out time when I can show you how much I love you. How much I am with you. And how much you can be yourself in me. So make the time. Make the space. And spend time with Jesus. Who is central to our faith. Amen.